Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. The True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival will be held on August 25th through the 27th, 2023, in Austin, Texas. Join other ethical true crime podcasters, victim advocates, and paranormal creators for a weekend full of panels roundtables, and live shows. Purchase your early bird tickets now at truecrimepodcastfestival.com slash tickets. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to True Crime Cases. I'm your host, Lainey. Crime doesn't change, but the law sure does. What do I mean by that? Just think about recent history, say the last 100 years. Think about how many people have fought for their rights and won during that time alone, even just a little bit, even if the war still rages on around them. Civil rights, rights for the queer community, the rights of indigenous peoples, the rights for women and children. In the not-so-distant past, women were denied the right to vote. Children toiled in factories, crawling through machinery for grueling 12-hour shifts. And as we grapple with the ethics of justice, the legality of taking a life or taking another's depends on where you stand, the state, the country, or the union that frames the boundaries of justice. And at the heart of it all, the key that transforms any act into a crime lies in its defiance of the law. In today's episode, I'm diverging from my regular episodes. You may not know this about me, but I received my bachelor's in history and I am a huge history buff. I completely get it if that's not your thing, but I appreciate you being along for the ride. In this episode, I'll unveil a captivating tale spanning nearly a century across the U.S., where what were once considered crimes are now celebrated as acts of heroism. But if you thought sharing these cases was a simple task, well, brace yourself. It's a riveting exploration of ethics, shifting perceptions, and the world that is crime. Okay. On to the show. The history of the United States of America has slavery entangled deeply, inextricably within its roots. Passed on from its predecessors in the British colonies, millions of black people were abducted into slavery from the 1500s and onwards. Millions of those people died in transit alone, millions more from the brutal forced labor and the mistreatment they faced from their white owners. Because according to the laws of the land at the time, they weren't people, they were property. There were only two options they had if they ever wanted freedom, 
one legal and one illegal. They could purchase themselves or they could run, leaving behind everything they knew for the slim hope of reaching somewhere they would be treated as human beings. As one of the figures we'll discuss today said, there was one of two things I had a right to, liberty or death. If I could not have one, I would have the other. Runaway or refugee slaves were a matter of law in the New England Confederation around 1643, with further legislation being enacted across many of the 13 colonies as the years progressed. Virginia and Maryland were two states that began to legally enable the dispatch of bounty hunters to capture escaped slaves and return them to their owners. New York passed legislation aimed to prevent slaves from managing to pass through Canada in 1705. It took a long, long time for attitudes to begin changing, but by the time the British turned tail and fled due to their defeat in the Revolutionary War, American citizens were able to grasp their independence from an arrogant master. And, well, some people started to see sense. By the time the Constitutional Convention rolled around in 1787, several northern states had decided to abolish slavery altogether. This presented a problem to Southern politicians, whose constituents numbered a great many, very wealthy, very slave-owning plantation owners. They pushed for a fugitive slave clause to be included in the Constitution, which would mean that even if an enslaved person escaped to a state that did not allow slavery, it would not change their status from enslaved to freed. Six years later, a Fugitive Slave Act clarified this further. Slave owners and their agents would have the right to hunt, sorry, search, for escaped slaves in states where slavery had been abolished. They had to be brought before a judge and have evidence of owning the refugee slave, at which point the slave would be forced to return to their owner. This act also meant that there would be a penalty of $500 for any individual found to be harboring, hiding, or helping an escapee. This penalty would be over $15,000 in today's money, and this law would stay in place until 1864. But we're going to rewind a little, because the act of harboring, hiding, and helping slaves escape from harm was going on for as long as it was illegal to do so. It's unclear when the Underground Railroad began to operate, but it was likely guiding slaves to safe places from at least around the time of the Constitutional Convention in the late 1700s up until the Civil War in the 1860s. For those not familiar with U.S. history, you may not know what the Underground Railroad is referring to. Don't be a Portia Williams and think it was an actual railroad. My Bravo-holics will know what I'm talking about. So what was the Underground Railroad? a series of people across the country opening their doors to fugitive slaves and taking them to the next safe place and the next and the next until they were somewhere they could live as free people. Abolitionists, ex-slaves, anyone sympathetic to the horrors faced by enslaved people formed invisible railroads that led north to abolitionist states, Canada or south through to Mexico. Those who led them were called conductors, The safe places were stations and depots, and those running these houses were station masters. Despite the names they used, however, it's worth mentioning that rail wasn't their primary method of travel, nor was much of it done underground in a literal sense. 
Their guides would walk the refugees or hide them in carts and wagons underneath innocuous goods, or sail them across bodies of water. The underground element was supposed to refer to its secretive nature, but as famous abolitionist, writer, and ex-slave Frederick Douglass lamented, I have never approved of the very public manner in which some of our Western friends have conducted what they call the Underground Railroad, but which I think, by their open declarations, has been made most emphatically the Upper Ground Railroad. It is more or less impossible for us to discuss the Underground Railroad and those involved with and against it in the depth it deserves in such a short span of time as this little podcast allows. But what we can do is zero in on some prominent individuals that saved the lives of countless Black people in the decades leading up to the Civil War. Before we do so, however, I'll repeat here what Smithsonian Magazine put so succinctly. Fugitive slaves were the engine of the Underground Railroad. They were agents in their own liberation. The Underground Railroad may have led them to safety, but the slaves themselves, the men, women, and children making their bid for the freedom that should have been their birthright, were the ones that boarded the damn train. Meet William Still, a remarkable man who would earn the title of the father of the Underground Railroad. Born free in 1821 to Levin and Sidney, both formerly enslaved, Still grew up with 17 older siblings, two of whom were tragically lost to slavery. Throughout his life, he championed the cause of abolition and fought for the rights of black Americans, not only to end slavery, but to secure voting rights and access to better job opportunities. At the age of 29, fate intervened when one of his long-lost brothers, Peter, stumbled upon him in Philadelphia. Peter had purchased his freedom and sought out Still, well known for his connections in the abolitionist movement and his assistance in helping refugee slaves escape. Little did they know that this chance encounter would lead to an astonishing revelation and a joyous reunion with their elderly mother, Sydney, back in New Jersey. However, the bittersweet news followed that another lost brother, Levin, had tragically died in slavery 19 years prior. But William Still's impact extended far beyond family reunions. His passion was aiding fugitive slaves on their perilous journey to freedom, guiding them from one safe place to another as they fled northward. His network of safe houses, or stations, stretched all the way from Philadelphia to Norfolk, Virginia, providing crucial support for those seeking liberation. Inside his own home, still offered refuge and care, ensuring that those weary fugitives received much-needed nourishment, medical attention, and even grooming allowing them to blend in as free individuals with their newly improved appearances. Thanks to William Still's unwavering dedication and the collaboration of his network, countless fugitives found hope, healing, and freedom. His story is a testament to the strength of the human spirit and the enduring power of advocacy, ethics, and compassion. It was a life's work that only became more treacherous and unforgiving as the Fugitive Slave Acts were put into law where before fugitives could find a home in many northern states or at least somewhere to hide, the new laws meant that nowhere in the states remained safe for any fugitives, regardless of how sympathetic abolitionists and anti-slavery their legislation and populations may have been. Not to mention the $500 fine that awaited any sympathetic individuals who might have helped a fugitive in need. Therefore, the end destination for the Underground Railroad 
shifted from friendly states to Canada, where black people were treated as human beings to a greater extent than their southern neighbors. Black people in Canada had the right to live where they wanted, sit on juries, run for public office and more. Fugitive slave acts didn't apply, and appeals for extradition of fugitive slaves went unanswered. It was an extra load to bear on the expenses of those like the Anti-Slavery Society, with whom still worked with, but it was a load worth bearing for a chance at freedom. Beyond all of this, what gave Still the moniker of Father of the Underground Railroad was his extensive record-keeping of the work he carried out and the people he encountered. He needed to account for all the funds he raised in aid of fugitive slaves and how exactly it was spent. And after the return of his brother, his dedication to those records only increased. He was determined to do everything that was in his power to reunite families like his and restore identities to those who had long been considered nothing but property. He was able to use these records to produce a book he published in 1872, aptly named The Underground Railroad, totaling over 700 pages. It wasn't about himself or what he had done, but clearly detailed the accounts given to him by the desperate, determined fugitive slaves he helped on their way to freedom, giving a voice to hundreds of stories that otherwise would never have been heard. Still had kept these records safe and hidden all throughout the Civil War. He was the father of the Underground Railroad because, without him, we wouldn't know half of what we do about the railroad and its passengers. It's believed that Still was able to assist roughly 1,000 fugitives from slavery during his years of work, and it's worth reminding all of us that these efforts were, according to the U.S. Constitution of the time, very much illegal. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. From William Still, we move on to another prominent figure from the Underground Railroad. Perhaps the most well-known of all. While Still was a free man born to ex-slaves, Harriet Tubman was born into slavery in Maryland somewhere between 1820 and 1825. Born under the name Araminta Ross to her enslaved parents Ben and Harriet, whose name she would later adopt as her own, she was known to be stubborn, headstrong, and defiant throughout her childhood. This irked those overseeing her work to the point that she received punishment in the form of doing hard outdoor labor rather than the indoor domestic work she had initially been allocated to. At around 13 years old, the young Harriet received a devastating injury when an overseer threw a heavy weight at another slave, striking the young girl by mistake. This injury would haunt her for the rest of her life, but in some ways it was welcome, while at times she would seem to slip unconscious only to awake moments later as though nothing had happened. 
She would also find herself having visions of God and thought she had conversations with him. These conversations offered her the fortitude she needed, in addition to her own immense bravery, to complete the momentous tasks she set herself to. Harriet had seen what life was like for enslaved women. She had to watch as three of her sisters, Lina, Soph, and Mariah, were sold to cotton plantations in the Deep South, never to be seen again. On top of this, she knew that any children she had would be born into the same slavery as her, regardless of the status of their father. Children took on the status of their mother. So, even though she married a freedman, John Tubman, in 1844, their children would be the property of the same man who owned her. And that man, Edward Brodus, had already proven himself to be more untrustworthy than most, which is saying something for people who kept slaves. Harriet's family had previously been owned by the man's grandfather, whose will stated that they should be released from service when one of the parents, it's not clear which, reached the age of 45. That had been 15 years earlier, and Brodus refused to release her or any of her children. In March of 1849, Brodus died, and Harriet decided to escape. She made her plans, and her escape took place six months later. Despite her husband threatening to turn her in if she made any such escape attempt, she was able to convince her brothers Harry and Ben to join her, but they changed their minds only a couple of weeks into their venture, fearing the punishments they would face if they were caught, and Tubman was left to face the rest of the journey on her own. Her owner, Brodus's widow, did not realize Harriet had escaped for a whole two weeks. At that point, she offered a $300 reward for the return of her property. Not just Harriet, but her brothers too, as they had not yet returned. But Harriet was long gone. She traveled at night following the Northern Star and, by some wonderful luck, encountered a Quaker lady who happened to be involved in the Underground Railroad. She gave Harriet shelter and advised her on what the next steps could be. Though it's unclear where exactly Harriet traveled, she eventually made her way to Philadelphia, walking an incredible 90 miles from her starting point. As Harriet later told a biographer, I was free, but there was no one to welcome me to the land of freedom. I was a stranger in a strange land, and my home, after all, was down in Maryland, because my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters and friends were there. And she decided that she was going to change that. Working low-paying jobs in various establishments such as hotels and clubs, Harriet saved up her money with one purpose in mind, to save her family. The Underground Railroad gave her the opportunity to do so, and so she became one of their conductors. In the 1850s, Harriet willingly walked back into the land she had fled only years prior, returning to Maryland to free others trapped in slave labor, not only once, but from as many as 13 to 19 times in the decade that followed. In doing so, she faced re-enslavement, brutal punishment, and death if she were caught, all enabled by the laws of the land that made her nothing more than stolen property. And she did it anyway. I think it's worth reminding all of us that at this point, the oldest Harriet could have been was 30 years old. Though some may have assumed Harriet to be unintelligent due to her head injury, or due to her illiteracy, she was an incredibly clever woman who carried out these rescues with what could be considered a mix of experience, knowledge of the land, faith in herself and her God, and pure genius. She operated during winter months, where there was less chance of being seen, due to the longer nights providing more cover. 
She would dress in disguises so nobody ever knew who to look for, leaving local slaveholders scratching their heads as to how so many slaves were escaping. She also knew how to get the fugitives a head start, often starting their flight on Saturday nights, as she knew newspapers wouldn't publish runaway notices until Monday morning. Slowly but surely, Harriet managed to guide almost her entire family northwards to safety, personally or through advice passed on by word of mouth. Even those who managed to buy themselves out of slavery were still in need of rescue. Her father had been able to purchase the freedom of both him and her mother, but risked arrest as he harbored fugitive slaves. So although they were both free, legal persons, both Ben and Harriet Sr. needed their daughter's aid to find a place of safety. I said almost her entire family, as Harriet managed to rescue everyone but two people. The first, her husband, didn't want to be saved. He had remarried by the time she came to him and tried to convince him to join her, but he was not interested, choosing to stay with his new wife. Hurt, but never broken, Harriet took the opportunity to gather 11 fugitive slaves and took them up the East Coast to safety in Canada, as the Fugitive Slave Act put in place the previous year made settling in northern states not worth the danger. The other family member she could not save was her younger sister, Rachel. She died not long before Harriet came to rescue her, and this marked the final mission Harriet would undertake for the Underground Railroad in late 1860. Figures vary between sources, but it is believed that over the course of those 10 years, Harriet Tubman had rescued between 70 and 300 fugitives. None of the fugitives she guided were ever captured, nor was Tubman herself. And she didn't stop there. During the Civil War, which started only a year after her rescue missions ended, she worked for the Union Army in a number of positions. Most notably, she was an armed scout and a spy, and she became the first woman to lead an armed expedition in the Civil War leading to the Combahee River Raid and, in doing so, liberated another 700 slaves. There is much, much more we could say about Harriet Tubman outside of these acts of bravery, but as that track leads us away from the Underground Railroad, we'll leave her story there. Only to say that she died of pneumonia on March 10, 1913, a legend in her own right that would only become more loved as people learned of her deeds over the years. Intriguingly, as we venture further into this episode, we shift our focus to a lesser-known chapter in history, the Reverse Underground Railroad. While our earlier discussion touched on illegal acts of heroism, this darker counterpart takes us on a really chilling and kind of gross journey. The Reverse Railroad, although not as widespread or enduring as its underground counterpart, operated with a sinister intent. As its name suggests, this clandestine network deviated from the path of liberation. Instead of aiding fugitive slaves to freedom, it resorted to the unthinkable, kidnapping free black Americans from states where slavery had been abolished, clandestinely spiriting them southward and subjecting them to the harrowing fate of being sold into slavery once again. The stark contrast between these two underground movements paints a haunting picture of the human struggle for justice and power. As we delve deeper into this, we're going to unravel the motivations behind the Reverse Underground Railroad and explore the lives forever altered by its malevolent actions. In 1807, a law was enacted to prohibit the importation of slaves from Africa into the United States. However, the booming southern industries that thrived on slave labor persisted. As a result, the supply of legal slaves failed to meet the growing demand, 
causing the prices of existing slaves to skyrocket to as high as $600 a person. Seizing the opportunity, one particular gang emerged eager to capitalize on this lucrative demand. The Cannon-Johnson family, situated in Delaware, a slaveholding state, operated as both a gang and a business during the 1810s and 20s. Their abhorrent enterprise involved kidnapping free black individuals and selling them further south to anyone in need of slaves, without asking questions or showing any care for their victims. In essence, they engaged in human trafficking, generating an immense amount of profit from their heinous deeds. Their operations were further bolstered by the Fugitive Slave Act, which worked in their favor. If any member of the gang was seen accosting a black man, they could conveniently claim to be recapturing an escaped slave. In a time where people were indifferent to the plight of free black individuals, their word as white men carried more weight than that of their victims. The apparent leader of the gang, Patty Cannon, cleverly ran a tavern catering to slavers, allowing her to cultivate an unsavory network of individuals willing to assist in transporting potential slaves without raising any questions. By strategically locating her house on the border of Delaware and Maryland, across three counties, she created a legal jurisdictional complication. If pursued, they could easily escape across state lines and find safe haven until the coast was clear. Bribing local sheriffs further ensured they could operate without impunity. The extent of their illegal abduction slavery network knew no bounds, stretching deep into the South, reaching as far as Alabama and Mississippi, if not beyond. In those regions, the legal systems often played in their favor, aiding their ability to evade capture. For any Black individual seeking freedom in the South, the law was heavily stacked against them. Corrupt magistrates often accepted bribes or were pro-slavery, refusing to hear their pleas. Even if their case made it to court, Southern courts required the testimony of white witnesses to prove their free status, but it was illegal for Black individuals to testify against white people. The Cannon-Johnson family's heinous activities and the systemic biases of the time led to an environment where justice and freedom were grossly denied. Put succinctly by Carol Wilson, even if a kidnapped slave succeeded in convincing a white person of their story, few white Southerners would be willing to expend time and money, as well as incurring the wrath of their neighbors and pressing the victim's case. During this troubling period, any black individual facing the threat of losing their freedom found themselves entirely reliant on the goodwill of white people, both in the state where their trial took place and in the state from which they were abducted. Pennsylvania, a state central to our stories today, notably hosted a significant part of our narratives. While Philadelphia was considered a haven for many slaves due to its large free black population and numerous abolitionists, nobody was truly safe, whether they were refugees seeking freedom or already free individuals. The city became a prime hunting ground for the reverse railroad, yet no protective structures were in place to safeguard the population. Young black men and children, particularly those alone on the streets, faced the greatest risk of abduction. As early as 1800, almost a decade before the importation of slaves was illegalized, concerns grew exponentially. In response to numerous suspected kidnappings, 73 concerned freedmen from Philadelphia and its suburbs circulated a petition to Congress, pleading for an investigation into the alarming incidents. Sadly and unsurprisingly, no action was taken at that time. 
it would take another 26 long years for any official attention to be directed toward this pressing issue. The lack of immediate response underscored the systemic challenges and indifference faced by the Black community during this tumultuous period. Joseph Watson was the mayor of Philadelphia for the years of 1824 through 27, getting successfully re-elected in each of those years. Watson received letters similar to the kind that had petitioned Congress over two decades earlier. Black people were being abducted and somebody needed to do something about it. However, it was incredibly difficult to track individuals once they had left the city, and he couldn't do anything about it if he didn't have a starting point. And he got such a starting point when in 1826, two white planters from Mississippi contacted Watson with concerns that two slave traders, Jesse Cannon and Joan Johnson, may be attempting to sell them abducted freedmen. They had confiscated the boys and one woman in the slavers' custody until a time that the men could provide proof of ownership, and they didn't think they ever would. Watson got to work pulling together the documentation necessary to prove the boys' freedom and sent it to the concerned men, slaveholder John Hamilton and his attorney, John Henderson. The reason any suspicion was raised at all was because of the bravery of 15-year-old Sam Scomp, who had been one of the two boys Cannon and Johnson were trying to sell and spoke up about being abducted. Sam was, in fact, a runaway slave. He had fled a plantation in New Jersey and was likely in Philadelphia for less than a week at the time of his abduction, on August 10, 1825, sleeping on the streets of Philadelphia and desperate to make just enough money to survive. The obvious place to go for this was Market Street, where seamen were always willing to offer a few coins to let boys haul some goods for them. He was suspicious of most people being a fugitive, but let his guard down when he was approached by a mixed-race sailor asking if he would unload some fruit, peaches, oranges, and watermelons from a small ship nearby. Sam agreed to the job, which offered him 25 cents, and quickly took to the man who introduced himself as John Smith. This sense of ease would be short-lived, however, when Sam made it to the ship and was shoved to the floor, held at knife point and tied up. Smith and another man, this one white, threatened to cut his throat if he made any noise, so he kept quiet and was imprisoned in the hold alongside another boy. Enos Tilgman was only nine or ten years old and had been kidnapped the same way as Sam on the previous day. He worked as a chimney sweep and his father was a sailor, likely the reason he was in the area of the docks. Another boy soon joined him. His name was Alexander Manlove. He was around the same age as Enos and had also been offered money to offload fruit. Cornelius Sinclair was next, 10 years old, able to read and write, and beaten severely in his time on the boat. Finally came Joe Johnson, age 14 or 15, also a chimney sweep. All of this information was recorded as it was contained in the letter Watson received from Hamilton and Henderson. Once all five boys were captured, the two kidnappers lifted anchor, taking them from Philadelphia all the way to Delaware. As you may have assumed already, John Smith was a fake name. John Purnell was the mixed-race man who acted as a decoy, and the white man was Joseph Johnson of the Cannon Johnson Gang. The gang were known to use black and mixed-raced men as decoys, part of the reason they were so successful in their abductions. These men, who looked and sounded like their uncles, would be seen as more trustworthy than white people, and had a greater chance of being able to lure black kids and adults into somewhere they couldn't be seen. So what was in it for them? 
Well, money, of course. Greed and violence being, unfortunately, a universal human condition. John Purnell was one of the known decoy for the Cannon-Johnson gang, another being a man named Henry Carr. If you're interested in learning more about these decoys, historian Richard Bell goes into great length discussing their prominence in the abductions of fellow people of color in his essay, Counterfeit Kin, Kidnappers of Color, The Reverse Underground Railroad, and the Origins of Practical Abolition. So, the abducted boys were taken to Delaware, where they were chained in the attic of Joseph Johnson's house. Two women were imprisoned with them. Free woman, Mary Fisher, who was from Delaware, and captured while collecting firewood, and a refugee slave named Maria Neal. They were treated viciously in their time with the gang. Joseph Johnson's brother, Ebenezer, was put in charge of taking them south to Alabama, and he regularly beat the boys. He beat the boy named Joe so violently that he died from his injuries. Cornelius Sinclair was sold in Tuscaloosa, so by the time they got to Hamilton and Henderson in Mississippi, the only remaining boys were Sam, Enos, and Alexander. It was December 21st, and they had been in the custody of the Cannon Johnson gang for over four months, when, seeing the sale as their last chance, Sam spoke up. He told the two men that he and the others had been abducted and that one of their number had been murdered that very morning. At this point, Sam, Enos, Alexander, and Mary Fisher were taken into the care of Hamilton. Proof of ownership was demanded, and whichever Johnson was present, because it's unclear whether it was Joseph or Ebenezer, was sent to Virginia to retrieve it. Though there was, of course, no proof, even in the case of Sam, a fugitive slave, the Johnsons had no legal right to any of them. It's unclear what happened to Maria Neal, the other abducted woman. Mayor Watson, back in Philadelphia, began to work alongside the Pennsylvania Abolition Society to help collect the documents needed to return the boys to freedom, which was incredibly difficult as they were far enough south that the testimony needed to come exclusively from white people, and very few white people knew the boys. The documentation as a whole was sent down to Hamilton to present to the court. Luckily, the ruling went in their favor, and all four boys were freed from the grasp of the Cannon-Johnson gang and returned up north to Philadelphia, with further assistance from Hamilton and Henderson, without whom they never would have even had a chance of being located. The Attorney General for Mississippi, Richard Stockton, claimed in correspondence with Mayor Watson, the state of Mississippi is a slave-holding state, but be assured, sir, there is no community that holds in greater abhorrence the infamous trafficking of African Americans, which seems ironic, to say the least. And these boys really were the lucky ones. In 1827, the United States Gazette reported that it is believed that there have been at least 30 cases of kidnapping in our city and country in the last two or three years many of whom, and many more outside of the reported 30, were never seen again. It is again unclear what happened to Mary Fisher of Delaware. And the story doesn't end with that trial. That was simply to determine whether the boys were free as they claimed, relying on affidavits sworn by friends, family, and employers. However, the kidnappers, the entire Cannon-Johnson gang, were still at large and most of them would never be brought to justice. But it wasn't for lack of trying. Pennsylvania Governor John Schultz 
issued warrants for the gang in Virginia, Alabama, and Mississippi, while Mayor Watson offered a $500 reward for any information that led to their apprehension. The Delaware Attorney General at the time called Joseph Johnson, quote, perhaps the most celebrated kidnapper in the country. It seems that they were all well aware of who they were looking for. They just couldn't find them. A few arrests were eventually made, but none of the major gang members or the immediate family members. Henry Carr and John Purnell, the decoys, were both captured between the end of 1826 and the summer of 1827, and set to stand trial in Philadelphia. Carr in the mayor's court and Purnell in the mayor's court and Quarter Sessions Court. They were tried together in the former and Purnell alone in the latter. The mayor's court, which featured Cornelius and Alexander as witnesses for the prosecution, found them not guilty, and Carr left to return to Alabama, only to die the next year. In the Quarter Sessions Court, however, all four surviving boys served as witnesses, Cornelius, Alexander, Enos, and Sam. A report of the time was particularly fond of Sam, saying, The audience laughed with him, for there was much humor both in the manner and matter of his testimony. And finally, some justice. Purnell was found guilty on two counts of kidnapping. The penalty given was a $4,000 fine and a 42-year prison sentence, of which he served six years before dying in prison in March of 1833. The rest of the gang had fled into the Deep South, and Mayor Watson never managed to capture any of them. He received occasional reports of sightings throughout the states, but by the time someone had been sent to investigate the sightings, the individuals would have disappeared. Curiously, Patty Cannon was eventually arrested in 1829, but only when authorities found evidence that she had murdered a white slave trader among several others. Stories of Patty have become sensationalized to the point where it's unclear what is true and what was made up to sell books including her casting a black infant onto a fire to murder him. What is known for sure is that she died in prison while awaiting her trial for murder. The rumor mill suggested it was by poisoning herself, but again, it's not certain. Apparently, her remains were exhumed when the jail was expanded in 1907, and her skull was stolen in the process. Through a rather random chain of custody, it ended up in the Dover Public Library and seems to have been used as a Halloween decoration from then on, allegedly. It is believed that the Cannon-Johnson gang abducted hundreds, if not thousands, of free people of color to sell into slavery, and it's a sad fact of both the Underground Railroad and the Reverse Underground Railroad that nothing is known of the hundreds and thousands of people of color that never made it out alive. I'll leave it there today, with the hopes that we all continue to remember the incredibly brave people whose stories today's episode barely even brushed upon, not to mention the ones whose stories never got told. Okay, listeners, thank you for joining me in this episode as we file away another true crime case. If you like our podcast, please review us on Apple Podcast or your podcast player of choice. It's a really big help follow us on social media. We're active on Twitter for now at truecrime underscore cases, Facebook at facebook.com slash truecrimecaseswlaney, and Instagram at truecrimecases with Lainey. Our website is truecrimecasespodcast.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at laneyhobbsbo or on TikTok at laneyhobbs. 
And we'd love to hear your episode suggestions. Send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was researched, written, and edited by Jesse Hawk of The Inky Paw Print, with content editing by Lainey Hobbs. Audio engineering produced by the best in the business, Neeks, at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or at theinkypawprint.com.